bronche, bronche. That's how we say brunch. Here's to the ladies who stay busy with their lunch. Yo anda bochinche. Paquete con pinche. You know what they said? Got too busy, got too thinking. Aquí en esta mesa se respeta como ñón. Si la copa está llena, yo te doy la bendición. So what if we get batches? We from the Bronx. That's it. Don't get it twisted. We be going to Manhattan. Be a queen. Be a boss. Ladies who brunch are popping off. Hey, we pop, pop, and pop it off. We, we pop, pop, All pop right. The episode's about to start. What's up, everybody? And welcome to another episode of Ladies Who Bronche. I am Julissa. What's good, everybody? This is Skittles. And this week, we have someone who honestly, like, was one of my favorite people when I was working at WeWork, straight up. Um, Super, super, super big heart is what I think I want to say about him. Super big heart, really, really dedicated, and just honestly, like, one of the motherfuckers I would call if I needed help to get away from robbing a bank because I really think he would hold me down fully. John, who the uh, f- are you? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> hi everyone. Uh, I'm John. Uh, last name Mark. It's not French. I'm not Jean Ma. Say that while I do love that intro, I'm probably the motherfucker who's also robbing the bank with you, (laughs) not talking you out of it because I'm trying to get. (laughs) Uh, I'm currently still a WeWork employee, which is enough in and of itself. Um, But more so than that, you know, I'm a I'm a biracial kid from Georgia. I'm a former military vet. You know, I'm so many of these labels that. These companies are trying to get right in 2020. I'm like all of the motherfuckers. <laughs> and most importantly, I'm a dude who just loves to brunch. Yes, yes. yes. And honestly, that is what we are all about here. We're all about these brunch moments. And John, I, I'll say like John, you know, is, is being really humbling. Yes, all these titles are true. But I think the thing I love most about you, John, is nothing that has to do with your titles and how smart you are or the fancy things you did in the military. It's just your freaking heart. And so John was always one of those people who like welcomes everyone. And and when John first started the company, I was running the location up in Harlem and he like busted through and he was like, yeah, I want to talk to you about like, you know, an organization or a group that we had within, we were called We of Color, um, which is an employee like uh, resource group obviously for people of color. Um, And at that time, the group was going through a rough patch. I think rough patch is putting it nicely, but it was going through a rough patch. Um, And John was just new and excited to know that this sort of thing was around and then decided to roll up and, and like have a conversation with me to try to understand why the enthusiasm around this group was so funky because he was just ready to get to work and make shit happen. And then like, I remember John, when you first came in, at first I thought, uh, this motherfucker's gonna get disappointed. He just has no idea what shit he's gonna into. He got too much hope for this space. Like I was very much hopeless about what he was trying to do, but because he was a brother and he was trying, I was like, well, I'm gonna try with him, but really the shit <laughs> it fall flat on its face. And I was wrong. And I was wrong. And John, along with several other folks, really, really re-energized that group and like have, and and I hope, I'm not with WeWork anymore, but I hope that the group still holds a presence in the space. And it's not just a presence in New York. It's actually an international presence that the group has. And I really do think that, John, whether you want to give yourself the credit or not, you're one of the reasons why this group really was able to resurge because we always had Rocky on the ground, but Rocky also needed some support in order to keep that engine going. And so like, I look to you as that person whose heart goes before 
the bullshit that would make you take a step back, rightfully so, because you can, because it wasn't your responsibility, but you still stepped up, you took responsibility because it mattered to you. And so that's the impression I have of John as a human, is that he's just fucking determined. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> now that I've given you some flowers, how 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 are things going um, at WeWork, but more more specifically around you and your career? How have you been feeling these days? We're in a fucking pandemic. Update us. Um, sure. Yeah, I, I would love to address that. I think I'll start first with just the thank you flowers that are like pouring in. Um, I'll address that first. And I think that first and foremost, and I should have said this in my intro, because I think this is fun for a lot of people, is that I'm also an Aquarius, right? So like Aquarius, number one, get bad reps for being uh, pretty emotionally distant and like, you know, fuck the bullshit, let's talk the logic kind of people, but also get a lot of credit and get a lot of positives in the sense that they're very humanitarian people and very like, I'm not gonna judge you because I don't know you like that and I respect your independence kind of people, right? So I come into WeWork, right? And, you know, I started WeWork uh, at the same, the reason that I came to WeWork is the same reason that I came to New York, right? I was working in DC. Um, I was working, you know, I, I'm IT by trade. So I had done a lot of IT work um, with a lot of alphabet organizations, the Department of Justice, the FBI, you know, all of these like three letter organizations. And in those organizations, it's very much just like, ideas, new ideas, like thinking outside the box is just not the wave because we've got the five-year plan already implemented. So, you know, when I heard about WeWork and I heard about things that you could literally implement in a day, if you just had the idea, you would have the support, which is like, all right, bet, like cash me in. So, you know, that brought me to New York and on day one, you know, you speak of Rocky, you know, I met Rocky on day one and Rocky is very much a people person. Like he's very much that type of person who's just like, when you meet him, you, you feel that energy. You feel like this hits differently. Like you are a different kind of person, right? And I, and I vibe with that. Like I took that in from myself and said that like, while I do believe that everybody is individual, you have been sent as a representative of this company. And this is how I see you are my first impression so therefore, like, it's easier for me to look at everybody else and also have that same impression. So Julissa, how you say, like, you see me coming in as just like another brother who's like, you know, waiting for the cynicism to happen, like a little starry eyed, you know, I saw that as just like, this is just a continuation of the people that I've been seeing. Mm. So I need to understand, like, you need to explain to me why we don't all feel this way. And I'm open to hearing that, but like, I don't see that yet. So help me either avoid some traps or tell me the traps that are in place and let's talk about how we can like get over that, right? Yeah. So, you know, what you, have, what you have told me has been very common among what I heard from everybody else was just like, yo, we've got the energy, we've got the like, we've got what, we, what we're missing is momentum. Mm. You know, what we're missing is, the people to come in and like truly carry the idea to the next level. And it was like, I am not yet bogged down with work. Like people have not really hit me with my true duty assignments yet. So until that happens, this is what I'm about, right? And I'm also gonna say, I'm also gonna tie that into what we're doing right now because right now I'm drinking a delicious Henny apple, which I lovely call the hood sweet tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> the whole tie-in, one of the biggest tie-ins to me even getting involved in the employee resource group was I just saw, you know, our office communicator, which is Slack. I saw this, you know, I just saw messages floating around. I was like, yo, come, you know, we're going to come have this like big, like quarterly gathering. There's going to be Henny. <laughs> it's like, regardless, regardless of the people that are involved, if there's Henny, there's me. So, <laughs> <laughs> I'm an avid Henny lover, which was one of my favorite things to learn about him after I met him. I was like, he likes what? <laughs> I'm, I'm really with it. You know, I've hit up your people for the Henny white plugs. <laughs> Yes, <laughs> Carmelia. Yeah, like legit. John is all about the honey. Sorry, but continue. They I'm really mad. They were serving, you know, with the shits. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it was. It was something. It, it, it for me was something familiar, right? Something familiar that I knew and that I loved, and then I had attached a positive, like a positive, all positive memories to the thing, right? Like some people have terrible handy stories. I do not. <laughs> I either have positive Henny stories or just stories I don't remember, right? Like there's no in between. <laughs> so, you know, having, going in with that mindset, right? Like I, I really think that just with most things in life, it's about your set and your setting. It's about how you feel and it's about what you walk into. <clears throat> so my set was good because I felt right with myself. The setting was good because I think I felt like all of the things that were surrounding me were designed to support me. Right. So then it was just like, with these two things in place, like, how can we lose? And that was the, that to me was my driving force in going out to anybody who was skeptical and saying like, okay, if, if you're feeling some type of way about this, if you're feeling skeptical, what is it? Is it your set? Is it your setting? And like, how can we address that? Mm, yes. Uh, I loved it. And, and honestly, like I said, it really propelled us forward into creating a new crew of people that were just like, it was, it was almost like we were there for each other because after a while it became, well, people like John and Rocky are still trying, cool. And oh, they put me on to like, like I met Kai, I met Dana, like, you know, all these other people through my involvement with John, but because we started to care about each other and what the cause of the group was, it really was able to organically become this really strong unit, which then allowed for the New York City crew to be of support to a larger unit of people throughout uh, the world, which was great. So, you know, I just always like to give you a little shout out because I know even though you weren't the founding member of We of Color from, you know, inception, you are a, a, a big reason why the energy came back. And I think that that's important to highlight because I think for all people of color who are working at whatever companies, there's this, there's this term called entrepreneur, which is the idea that you can be an entrepreneur within these spaces that you're working for, even though it's not your own thing. Um, and I think it's important to elevate stories like that because I, I feel like people should know that being an entrepreneur is actually a super valuable thing and it's a powerful thing. I consider myself a little bit of an entrepreneur when I was there as well. And I think that all of the cool things that I have going on now are due to the fact that I was willing to be in the weeds and go above and beyond at the time in that space and that going above and beyond didn't mean conforming to white structures and getting white people to like me and what I liked it was actually me being my authentic self and using that as the driving force force to challenge them on things that they were claiming as a company and and being like well if we're all these things then this also means that and like if you don't agree then we need to have a discussion around how we're defining things right and and so I love the idea that 
entrepreneurs are just as out here and, and important as entrepreneurs. So for those of us who work for other people and don't have our own job, do not, do not, do not belittle the power of your voice or the power of hosting an event or being in a space that feels authentic. Because like John said, the Henny is what got him. The Henny is what got him. So <laughs> that's just the power of the Henny. So I want to highlight that. Um, and John, just like really quickly also, um, I know throughout this pandemic, you'd shared that there were some exciting developments around your life <coughs> history that you were discovering. And I'm curious, how has that unfolded and how are you doing in that area? I mean, how much time we got? <laughs> <laughs> um, I'll try to, I'll give you the elevator. I'll give you the quick elevator, right? So, um, uh, something that you also must know about me is that I'm adopted, right? Um, uh, my adoption was private. I have no information on my biological family. Um, I took a 23andMe about five years ago. The short of it is that I got some information through that 23andMe that has helped me locate my birth mother, both my birth sisters, like true, like family, <laughs> like biological, like I'm related to you. I kind of look like you family. And there's so much to unpack with that. <laughs> that's just 20, that's 2020 vibes. If for, that's like a Thursday in 2020, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, if there were any year for this to happen, this is the one. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it's funny because when you did share that with our group, I remember being like, oh my God, like these 23 and me tests do have a purpose because sometimes you hear people with, with conspiracy theories talking about, oh, they're trying to steal our DNA to do oh, other things. I'd be gullible sometimes. <laughs> I'd be like, damn, for real, that makes mad sense because if I wanted to connect DNA samples, I'd start a company too. And so like, I have so many like misconstrued ideas about it. So to hear that it actually helped you for the first time was the moment that I was like, wait a minute, Actually, these, these things are really important. They're really important. And so um, I wanted to just say that for all my other 23andMe conspiracists out there that, you know, <coughs> who are really, truly benefiting from this. I want to say, too, that it's very much a double-edged sword, right? Like, I feel like there are people who are very heavily family-oriented and are very heavily, like, let's keep it all within the roof. Like, let's keep it all within ourselves. Like, you know, we got to stick tight, right? Like tribalism, which is a huge, I think it's like a big buzzword of 2020, right? Like tribalism, like keep it, keep it tight, keep it right, keep it tight. So as, for me, I don't necessarily like rock with that theme so heavily because of how I grew up, right? So I was open to receiving that kind of news, but I also want to caution against the, I want to caution on the other side of people who feel like, you know, they have this identity, it's very firm and rock solid, and understanding that by going through this process, you might unravel something about yourself or about somebody within your circle, within your tribe, that may shake you to your core, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, I did a 23andMe, um, like, a couple of months ago, so I was, like, trying to figure out where, like, my family's, like, bloodlines went through but I have a friend who also who had a sibling who did 23andMe and her sibling found out like this like huge family secret that was like not supposed to be unveiled and it was like it was like oh it was yeah. it was crazy it was yeah, I, yeah. so it, I completely agree that sometimes it is just like a fun like 
yeah, I just want to figure out where I'm from. But then sometimes it's like, no, you might find out some shit. <laughs> <laughs> not the father, bitch. You find yeah, out. you're not the father. <laughs> I will say, to, I will say for me, uh, real quick, before outside of the actual finding of my biological family, I think for me, growing biracial, and I was adopted by um, a black a black father and a German mother. Uh, I think for me that helped me identify with the 23andMe told me that, you know, I had like 6% Native American and so much European. And I was like, damn, they got me. Like I'm white. These people had been telling me my whole life I'm white and they got me, right? But then when you look into that deeper, it's like the, the, the European is Spanish and Portuguese, right? And the Native American is Taino. So it was like really me coming to an understanding of my own identity as being a half black, half Puerto Rican man. Like I've heard of the term Afro Latinx, right? But like that never really resonated with me until I was <coughs> And not only that, now I live in Bushwick. So it's like, now I really have this like visual representation of like people who look like me and people who, you know, speak to me in uh, very much in Spanish and expect me to like run it back. And I'm like, eh, you know, I haven't had that cultural experience yet. But I appreciate that, you know, you think that I'm one of you, right? Like you're willing to like allow me into this inner circle, even though I don't necessarily have that like feeling yet. I think it's very important for me along my journey of like finding myself identity. Yes, yes. Uh, I just love, and honestly, like we love to see it. We love to see people expanding on which part of the diaspora their, their identity comes from. And like, listen, Boricuas are also black, right? Like there's an entire right. population. And I think that like in terms of like finding the community within Afro-Latinidad, like it exists, right? The best part is, is that you don't have to create it out of nowhere. It is a truth of that people, you know what I mean? Along with the truth of like understanding the traces of Taino and how deeply that runs versus how much of it, how much of people's identity is actually just from the descendants of slaves that were brought to Puerto Rico after, you know, a lot of the Tainos were dying out of disease and shit like that. So I think that it's an interesting little dichotomy, you know, so this week I was actually, I was in a, an, on the app Clubhouse, that's Silicon Valley app, and somebody told me I wasn't Black because I was Afro-Latina, and it was a very interesting moment um, to be like, yeah, you know what? I'm not even mad at the sister who told me that because she don't know why I am Black, and I didn't always know why I am, why I am Black growing Whoa. up. So like, I took it as a moment of like, you know what, instead of being tight, you know, and trying to pull all the stats on you and like, I always talk about like having one of these DNA tests as proof to be like, nah, you want to question me? Here's my identity, you know? Um, and maybe I will get one now that I don't think that they're just trying to steal my DNA. But like, <laughs> but, like you know, understanding <laughs> that it's important, self-exploration is important because our self-discovery also lends to people's education. And the fact that I'm able to call myself black came from an educational moment that happened out of choice. But if I never chose to take a certain class in college, I might be learning that I was Afro-Latina now in 2020 when everybody was talking about it, as opposed to 10 years, literally 10 years ago when I started college. Wow, I'm old. Great. <laughs> anyway, anyway, but I think- John Wow. <laughs> <laughs> all right john so why don't you tell us what your favorite brunch plate is my favorite brunch plate um yeah. i mean to me i think anything you can make anything breakfast with eggs right like 
you can have a slice of pizza, you throw some eggs on it. Now it's, you know, some sort of breakfast plate. I'm not saying do that. Okay. <laughs> we need to talk about the whole recipe because we can talk about breakfast. Yeah. No, my, <laughs> my favorite brunch plate is probably huevos rancheros. Like that's where it's at. It's, it's real easy. Again, it's got eggs involved. Um, or anything, uh, I think, um, uh, have you ever heard of P-Days? I feel like P-Days, which are like, um, they're, I've, the last time I had them was at a Georgian restaurant, not Georgia, like my home state, but like Georgia, like the country. Oh. Um, and they're like these, um, uh, they're like, they're these like kind of large croissants uh, with bread, but then they have like eggs in the middle. It's like, um, um, what's the UK, what's the UK word for it? Um, what, what do you call it when you have the egg in the middle in the middle of the bread? Uh, oh, the, like, I don't know what it's bread. called, but I know what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Like, honestly, anything with eggs is fire, you know. And I'm a big bacon lover, and that's a big breakfast food. So. <laughs> yeah, bacon with anything, honestly. Right. Even if I'm at, like, even if I'm at, like, a place where it's, like, a mostly Mexican brunch type thing or, like, something that doesn't necessarily use bacon a lot, I will always get a side of bacon. Yo, and there are places that do gourmet ass bacon. Like they put like pecan, like I was in New Orleans and there's a place that did like this candy pecan bacon and it was like thick cut and it was in, it was incredible. Cause at first I was like $6 for a side of bacon. I'm a, <laughs> $2 a shrimp, what they charging out here? And like, <laughs> and then I had it and then I was like, oh, okay. This is like some special bacon. It was still too expensive, but it was mad. So yeah, I'm I'm from the Waffle House Nation, so we used to we used to we used to get into like the gourmet hash browns. So like anything else, like any of the other like regular breakfast slash brunch items, like right, very basic. <laughs> so what is your go-to brunch drink when you're going when you're out to brunch? Honestly, it really depends on a couple of factors, and you know, having lived in DC and now living in New York you know, brunch times are very different, right? So like in DC, it's like brunch starts very early. It's like a 10 to 11 a.m. start time. And then you're done by like two, three o'clock. In New York, I feel like it's a bit late. Yeah, exactly. I feel like in-, in I, That was not my DC brunch. That has not been my DC Ooh. brunch experience. But maybe it's because I'm a New Yorker brunching with a New Yorker who lives in DC. Right, exactly. Or like start <laughs> early and then go till madly. Just like right? keep going, right? keep you, going. You started like one o'clock, like the last time when I was living in DC and I came to New York brunch. We started at like one o'clock and then we were there so long that the regular happy hour started. And I was like, that's, they were like, that's a, that's not a fee, that's a feature, not a bug. And I'm like, what you mean? Like, they, you figuring us out because we don't went over way over the unlimited, you know, like we tripping. So, like, my drink of choice, it really depends. It depends if I'm hungover or I'm looking to turn up, right? If I'm hungover and I'm like trying to get back, right? Then for me, it's a Bloody Maria. And usually they don't have them on the menu. They have the Bloody Marys. And I have to ask, like, yo, can you do a Bloody Maria? What's Maria? We did, wait, 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 Julissa. We did a Bloody Maria for the brunch of Bebida like two weeks ago. That's a little right? It's, it's tequila Maria. instead of vodka. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I like the kick. I like the kick. Yes. Right. You know, I, I know a lot of people got mad feelings on uh, on tomatoes and 
and the drinks or whatever, but it gets you right. It's, it's the drink to get you there, right? But if it's me and I'm like coming into it and I'm like looking to go up, then um, there's a spot called Pig and Cow I know in East Village. Um, and they have like four different mimosa drinks. And I think I have somebody saved on my phone as White Peach because they have the drink <laughs> called White Peach. It's a white, you know, it's a mimosa, but it's got the white peach joint in it. Oh my God, it's Georgia. We love peaches. My stripper name would be Peaches. <laughs> like, yes. the whole vibe. Except that would be Black Peach. Name on my phone is Black Peach, low key. <laughs> oh, okay. I want it. I want it. Come on, Black Peach. All right, so John, tell us, what was it like going out to eat when you were growing up? Yeah, take that honey gold. So, oh, <laughs> ooh, ooh, it's delicious. Um, and for me, going out, what you mean like to eat? Um, going out for me in my town where I grew up, um, I spent seven years of my life on a military base. And then even when my dad retired, we like stayed in the area. So for me, it was all chain restaurants, right? Like, my mom's favorite place is Olive Garden because she loves the unlimited breadsticks. And my dad's favorite place is Outback Steakhouse because I'm not gonna lie, they got the fire. I fuck with both of those. Listen, I feel I fuck with both of those. And let me tell you, those are the fancier fast food places. Right, right. Nah, nah, but I'm saying, I'm saying, like, if you go into Olive Garden, you go to Outback, it's not like you go to McDonald's. Like, there's right. levels to this shit, you know? Right, exactly. <laughs> and and I, for me, it was like the 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 signal that when they wanted to go to these places, they were in a good mood, right? Like, this is celebratory. This is like, we're not going to the CC's pizza or the McDonald's of the game. Like we're really doing it today, right? So like, not only do I have those, but for me, I had a plug. Speaking of them, uh, speaking of Red Lobster, I had a plug. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, I call him a plug because I would pull up, I would text him in the parking lot. He would come out with a wrapped white bag and we would roll out. And it, it wasn't literally that, but it was them cheddar biscuits. Yeah! <laughs> yes, I was like, wait. It was quickly rolled up. We didn't say shit. It was like roll the window down. You know, I had the manual back then, so I had to manually roll it down, give you shit, you know, thank you. <laughs> roll it back up and chill out. I love it. I love it. That that was that that was like fine dining for me growing up, right? Like my parents weren't really cooks. It was like you know, you get fed, be thankful, you know, you eat, be thankful. So it wasn't like, now I'm at the point where like, you know, I go to a Michelin star restaurant and I'm like, ooh. Right, right, right. Now we know what Michelin star restaurants are because growing up, yeah, I yeah, yeah. yeah. No. Zagat, yeah. I remember when I was seeing, I was like, what's that? And people were like, yeah, the manual for the food. I was like, there's a manual? Yeah, like these are tires. <laughs> Michelin is a tire to me. Right, right. <laughs> and I love, actually, I love, I don't know that we've had yet on the podcast the, the, the perspective of having these places like Olive Garden and whatnot being the top notch. And I just want to add on the layer, not to like make the South sound different, but like 
in New York City, because there's such a mix of different cultures, like people who have mom and, mom and pop shops, there's a, a variety of restaurants where if you wanted some great Italian, Olive Garden is not your only option. If you wanted some great Mexican on the border, which I don't know if they have that in the South, but like mm -hmm. on the border isn't your only isn't your only option. Like you have authentic ties to the culture. So as a New Yorker, I feel like a lot of our answers became like, or a lot of people who answer this question are talking about McDonald's, Burger King, like, you know, that sort of thing, because we had so much access to good food, like directized culture, that the fast food became the fascination because it was the opposite of what we were used to. But I also, I think in saying that, like, as you were speaking, I was like, you know what, low key, when I turned 15, what I did for my birthday, I went out with two of my friends and my cousin and we went to Applebee's. And that was a big deal that we went to Applebee's and I felt like I was going out to eat by myself with my friends and Applebee's was a high level and I could handle it. Like it was a big fucking deal. Yep. <laughs> you know? Yep. There was some girl I remember. Listen, girl. I've done that too. One of my homegirls, Kai, I remember for her 15th birthday, we went to um, BBQ's and the movie theater on a the AMC across the street from the BBQ's on 42nd Street. That was a very big deal. Like That's a big thing, yeah. No, it was, and that was like a thing in high school, like to go to dinner and then do a movie or like even to just go, yes, yes. yes. Yeah, so, I completely agree. So you're bringing that up, John, has just brought such nostalgia because I think in the same way for your family that was eating out, I think even as New Yorkers, like for us, that would be going out because we always had good food, right? And even though we knew that food wasn't necessarily better than what we would have at home, it was the experience. It was the fact that we felt cool and that we were like paying for bills on our own and ordering off our own menus and not having our micromanaging parents, you know, like yeah. over our yeah. Because I'm gonna get a refill too, and I'm gonna get, <laughs> yep. I'm gonna get a refill, yep. and I'm gonna get a dessert. Yes, and you would always get dessert, and sometimes you didn't even really—it wasn't even about hunger; it was just about authority and entitlement. Because I can't, yeah. because I can't. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. Like going out, going on—you know—on one of my first dates and going to Applebee's and being able to be like, "Yo, two for twenty, I got it." Like, uh, <laughs> It's like it's like true independence, like you know, true independence in that sense of like it don't matter how the God is God, right? <laughs> but I got it. I you know, you can hand that bill to me happily, and I don't have to ask my right. parents. Like, what a good sense. <laughs> month. <laughs> I love it. All right, so John, what is your favorite bochinche? Bochinche being gossip. Bochinche topic to discuss over a meal. Um, you know, I think for me, I, I like to pride myself on being a great listener and I love getting people to talk about themselves, uh, especially because it allows me to avoid my own tea and shit. <laughs> um, I, I think a fun one that I've, uh, I think I've had fun with lately is just asking people to talk about conspiracy theories that they may believe in. You know, like, I feel like everybody has, these are like, it's like the like hashtag unpopular opinion thread, right? Where it's just like, you ask somebody like, hey, what might you believe in that maybe nobody else rocks with? And like, having to ask that in like a non, like you can tell me it's, a, this is a safe space, non-judgmental, right? And if somebody were to ask me that, right? Like, I think my favorite one, I know it's not true, is that, Ted Cruz is a Zodiac killer. <laughs> like, yes, look it up. 
look at look it up. There's a whole entire Wikipedia article <laughs> about Ted Cruz. It's completely unfounded. There's it's rooted in no fact. Like there's absolutely no way that this could be true, right? But talking about Ted Cruz could be the Zodiac killer. It's just a fun, like to me, it's just like fun and light and like takes away from like or offers at least in a brunch setting the distraction from like real conspiracy theories that are peddled by people that people actually believe that are like that are that are um uh hurtfully false right like that like have hurt and and people believing that they're true 100 i feel like it's like the, i feel like it's the right setting of like you know especially once you've had a few where you're like inhibitions are a little bit looser and you're like okay like i'm willing to like hear some people out just by default and just like other people feeling confident or feeling more, you know, it's a look of confidence of like being in there, feeling like now I'm in a safe space, so I'm gonna let off some like ideas, mm -hmm. you know, it's like it creates that perfect, <laughs> it's that perfect medium, right? Yeah. You know? 100%. I'm too gullible. I'm too gullible for that shit. <laughs> <laughs> you walk out here. I'm like, too gullible for that. I'll give you one. <laughs> I'll give you one that I remember from my childhood that just like still to this day blows my mind. So I feel like, you know, I grew up in Georgia and I know that, you know, Sierra is like Southern, Southern royalty, right? But like there was this huge rumor and I feel like this was like nationwide that like Sierra was a man, right? It was like, everybody has that, right? Like it's like a conspiracy theory that everybody like buys into with zero evidence. Like the evidence is she's tall, <laughs> like, um, yeah. You got an Adam's apple. Like, what? <laughs> I will never forget that because I remember when it was a thing, I remember feeling just very confused as to how it even happened. And I was like, what signs am I missing that are very clearly mannish that I'm like, I don't I don't think she's a man. And it's funny because there was a friend of ours, actually Lambie Skittles, who had mentioned this at mm. one point. We were at my house and sometimes when I'm at home with my friends, I just start watching old music videos just to be nostalgic. <laughs> and we were watching a Sierra music video and Lambie just goes, wow, this was made during the period where, where Sierra was doing everything she could to get her pussy shots in. So everybody knew she wasn't a man. Yes, it was, um... It was the, the way I ride. Right, and we were like, song. Shots in this video. This is because she wanted to show where the dick is not. There is no dick. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that. And it did carry. It was nationwide because I was in middle school. And I remember, I remember. Thing. and I remember boys used to bully each other about being like, "Oh, you think Sierra's? You think Sierra's hot? Oh, you're bad? <laughs> oh, you like?" And it was this whole anti-just transphobic as fuck, you know. Yeah. But and at that time, I didn't realize it was transphobic, transphobic as fuck. I just thought it was like boys being dumb and like calling women men when they didn't need to. But yes, I'm here for all the conspiracy theories. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So now we're going to move into our cheers section where we cheers uh, to dope people doing dope shit. And cheers to us because, because of us. We have a new motherfucking president elected <laughs> VP in the motherfucking house, Joe Biden. Fuck yes. out of here. Cheers. We did that. We, and by we, I mean people of color. Mm -hmm. Because the votes on the white people side lean heavily Trump. 
lean heavily Trump. There's a lot of blue states. And I kept saying this and people are like, oh, don't be a Debbie Downer, blah, blah, blah. Fuck y'all. I wanted to make it clear that even in states where it was blue, when you look at the map of the actual state, you got to see how much red is in there. You got to see that there's still a lot of red and that that means that these are people who exist with real opinions. And even though we outnumber them, they surround us. They mm -hmm. surround us. And that is something to not forget. Though, still, we are allowed to celebrate today because today we got the news. And so by the time this podcast... Ooh, okay, confirmation trade. <laughs> <laughs> leaving the office. Right, right. By the time this podcast comes out, we'll be a week into having um, a new president-elect. Um, so it don't it won't be as fresh, but I do want to capture the excitement of what's happening right now. So guys, where were you when you found out the big news and how do you feel? Well, I was laying in my bed browsing through Clubhouse and um and I just got a text message that was like, CNN's calling it. And then I went on Clubhouse and there was like a chat room that said Biden won, and then I went to CNN and that's how I ended up finding out. Like but it was so funny because just the energy, like I couldn't help to, but to feel happy, relieved, proud. Like um, I know that one of my first thoughts was, I like I was like, yes, he won. But then like my next thought was like, oh, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the work is over. You know what I mean? Like it means that the work is continuing or whatever. So that was like my second thought. And so then I was kind of second guessing why I was feeling proud. But then I was like, nah, fuck that. Like. Trump is out of the office. Like we just, we, we dealt with like such ridiculousness in the office for four years. That is just such a relief to know that this witch is dead. Ding dong, the witch is dead. Witch oh witch, the wicked witch. Like that's literally all I can, all I can like play in my head all day today. It's like, ding dong, the witch is dead. <laughs> the witch is dead, but the curse isn't gone. And that's just- Yeah, we still gotta remember in Wizard of Oz, the Wicked Witch of the East was dead, but the Wicked Witch of the West, they still had to kill her. Yep. Oh, so, we're in Oz, people. <laughs> we ain't in Kansas anymore. <laughs> John, where were you? Uh, I think for me, uh, I, I think just in the pandemic, my whole hours have been shifted. I mean, I've been a night owl just by default, right? But I woke up at probably like 11-ish today. You know, my girl's like, yo, like, let's go get some food. Like, let's go, like, go out and, like, eat, you know, to be outside today, right? It's, like, a nice day. And I'm like, eh. So I'm, like, trudging out of bed and, like, trying to get myself together to go eat. And then you just hear people in the street. And they're just like, fuck yeah! <laughs> like, they just, like, extra on 10, right? So it's, like, you hear these people, they're like, woo, woo. And, like, obviously being in New York, it's, like, when you hear that, like your automatic assumption is like, okay, something good must have happened right. in terms of like, you know, your, your political leanings. So that's when I cut on CNN, CNN had rejected it, like clear cut winner, you know, I've got a cheesecake in the fridge from juniors that is just like, it's the in case of Joe Biden victory cheesecake yeah. that I, you know, I wanted to eat it yesterday, right? Like, you know, I wanted to eat it when it was like, you know, the trends were good and like the trends you know, we're trending upward. It like looked as if that were going to be the case, but it's like, yeah, I'm from Georgia and I have seen leads go to waste <laughs> in so many different regards, like multiple times that it's just like, look, it ain't over until it's truly over, right? 
So, you know, that's where I was. I walked out on the street, you know, we went to go get some breakfast sandwiches and whatnot. And like, you can just see the energy on the street, right? Like you can just see, and that's the thing that I love about New York is like, New York has never been afraid to hide its emotions. Like, you know exactly how people feel everywhere. Like I just met you. How you feel about that, right? <laughs> no. So like you got people honking in the streets and like, uh, you know, if it were any other day other than today, you'd be like, yo, that's just traffic. <laughs> you know, now you put it together like, yo, these people are here to celebrate. These people are here to like, we're, we're, we're reveling in this good thing. And I agree with you, Skittles, that have just like, you know, I also had that moment where I was like, you know, I understand that this is a good moment. We should be in this moment. And it's very hard to be in this moment when we know that there's so much work to be done. It's like running up a hill and like looking down and looking at your feet as you're running up. Like that's very difficult, right? But at the same time, it's like, this is just a step. I've seen on Facebook and I've had to like check, you know, a lot of my friends who were like, yo, the work begins tomorrow. And it's like, no, the work has been begun. Like this, mm-hmm. is, a, this is a product of that work. Like this is, this is, we got here because of work. So it has been started and it will still be here tomorrow. But that shouldn't, we should also still live in this moment and accept and celebrate this moment because it is a good moment. I'm glad yes. that point of like, yeah, the work has been going on and this is a result of the work because mm-hmm. I think to look at this as a like a good luck stroke and now we start working and guilty as charged as being one of the people to be like yeah today we celebrate tomorrow we get back to work um I absolutely have always believed that the work was never done because if you're a person of color in this country there's never an actual break just moments where you give yourself a break um and so I think it's important though to realize that it was with it wasn't without lots of work that this happened. This election, we had more people vote than ever have voted in a presidential election ever. Um, And I think that that is very indicative of how people took the call to action seriously enough. A lot of us went to those voting booths and we were tight. We did not want to be voting for Joe Biden. I, again, Mm -hmm. red-handed, was not one of these people. I did not want to vote for Joe Biden. I knew I was going to vote for him because I knew by any means necessary I was not voting for Trump. But I was like, fuck, but it gotta be Biden. So how am I out here? How am I gonna support this man? How am I gonna support this movement when I already vocally did not support this man before we knew that he was gonna be the candidate? Like there are strong reasons and my reasons have not changed just because now he has been selected as a Democratic nominee. And so it took me a really, 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 literally was in the booth what was it last week or two weeks ago, like long time to come to the fact that this is who I had to nominate or who I had to vote for. And this was who was going to be my best option. And so to that point, I say, I think it is important that we celebrate. I do think it is important that we recognize that this is a result of our work because the idea of this white savior narrative that can develop from Joe Biden coming into the White House, before we even get there, before we even think that he saved us, we saved him. We saved his party. Mm-hmm. We saved the Democratic Party. We did that. He hasn't done anything for us yet, which means he now is the one who has to pay up for the debts of the mm-hmm. one that done. And I think it is important that we're able to articulate that so that when we're in, you know, the Senate, the Congress, whatever, trying to fight shit, that we that he recognizes and Kamala recognizes that it is people of color throughout diasporas and colors and shades and continents who made this happen for them. I mean, I was shocked to to find out that Joe Biden 
was leading so heavily amongst Asian Americans and both including like India, China, Germany, all of it, like all Asian Americans, because there was a very intentional strategy around that because they knew that it wasn't just about the conversation around blackness, that there is an entire nation of people that we need to buy into. And it was shocking to me because in my head, I was like, I didn't see any Asian outreach, but I'm not Asian, which then made me mm. that politics, right? Because those numbers are true and the outreach is true. Politics works very specifically and it's, and it's catered to sort of like pander to business pander to. Knowing that truth and recognizing that I was not the only one being pandered to and other people were being pandered to in a way that I didn't even see just allows me to understand that our voices matters even in the pockets outside of the bigger pockets that we see. So the Asian American community had a huge job to do and they followed through during this election. Excellent. Thank you so much. I don't want to just take all the credit from Black people and say Black people were the only reason why Joe Biden won. Thank yeah. you, Asian Americans. We sure know that the Latinx community to a fault, having a lot of white Latinx people have overwhelmingly seemed to have sided with Donald Trump as opposed to Joe Biden, which was shocking. But at first I was like, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Because I'm not a white Cuban. I am not a white Venezuelan. I'm not a lot of these white people, right? Because if a German motherfucker can come from Germany here and we'll still call him white, then somebody who comes from Argentina, Venezuela, whatever the fuck, Cuba, could be white and come here, we could call them white too. I don't care if we speak a different language. It's the same shit. White people have a deep loyalty to Trump. And in the Latinx community, there are white people. And because there are white people there, we also got white people who support him. But the Latinx community, in terms of the nuances, did not collectively fucking support this monster. And so I, I just like all of these like pockets, I'm rambling to say, I think now that we have a president, I think now that we can have deeper conversations, it's important to understand the nuances behind the voting numbers and to look at New York City or even just the New York State map and see that north of New York City, you just have four little dots in upstate New York that are blue and everything else is red. And everything else is red. And that means something. Again, it means we outnumber them, but they are surrounding us. And so we need to be able to go past our self-identity and celebration of what our identity did to help support this you know, election and start to think now as a, as a holistic country and start to say, but now let's look at where the red is and let's see how we're surrounded, even though we're outnumbering them, because we can't just forget them. Just because we don't agree with them does not mean that that population of this nation gets to be ignored and we get to shut them up because our president is in the house. That's not how it works. We still have to win the Senate and they still can act wild and do all types of white supremacist crazy shit that they want anyway. So we still have to be on alert, but this is a day of celebration. Woo. Cheers, because I'm here for that on so many levels. Cheers. cheers. I'm going to not only cheers Stacey Abrams, but also cheers all of the groundwork that is being done in Georgia on multiple for multiple reasons, right? Number one, not just presidential, right? Like it looks like as of this recording that Georgia is going to trend blue which is something that I have never seen in my lifetime, or at least been able to remember in my lifetime. I'm old. <laughs> also, but also on top of that, it goes down the ballot. Like this is the first election in which both of the Senate seats in Georgia are going to a runoff. And both of those opportunities, like what I've been hearing from political pundits, but like also just from my people in Georgia is that, you know, it's like, what does looking what looking at a ballot maybe in December when you know that Donald Trump will no longer be the president, do you still vote along those party lines? Or are you thinking maybe 
you know, I might vote for the person on the ballot. Like with, with no Donald Trump in the ballot, does that affect voters' tendencies, right? Mm -hmm. And in Georgia, like growing up, that was never an option. Like it was never something to, to think that you may vote for the presidential candidate being one party, but you vote for your governor with a different party, your senator, your local representatives of another party. And that is a culmination of not only, Stacey Abrams is getting her flowers and rightfully so. I feel like Stacey Abrams should get whatever office that she asked for, literally whatever office that she asked for. Cause she really, she is one of the few political opponents that I've seen take an L, like hold an L and hold an L which on some debatable bullshit, right? Like we can debate that all day. Regardless, she took that L and she said, you know what? Not only am I going to work to prevent what happened to me happening to anybody else, but I'm gonna hold that door open for anybody else who is like me, who still sees this as an opportunity to be able to do that, you know? And that is something that like the, the, the decorum, like when we talk about America, we talk about America of decency, of respect, of like, you know, it doesn't matter what side of the aisle you're on, we treat each other this way, but Stacey Abrams and the people in Georgia have really embodied that and have shown through action that like this is possible. So that's where my cheers goes to. And I'm clearly biased because I love my home state for that. <laughs> We'd love to see and honestly, election night, somebody on Clubhouse had asked, do we think Georgia is gonna pull through for us? I mean, we know all the work that's been done in Georgia for the voters, do we think Georgia's gonna pull through for us? And I went, ha ha, no. That was um, the answer. I was like, no. That's Georgia, baby. We were up 28-3 on the Patriots. <laughs> we have been up in so many scenarios where you think it's just like a wrap. Like, you can turn off the TV and go, and it don't happen. We have been, we, Georgia is truly the state, I think, over the last five years that has just been accustomed to seeing an outcome that they want and having it ripped from them. Yep. Mm. Literally. So I, I'm just happy to see that there's been some, and like, look, they're still technically counting in Georgia. They're still technically counting all the votes. So I think Joe Biden is going to take it. I kind of do, but the num the race is so close in Georgia that I, you know, as a New Yorker, I feel like it's easy for us to mock this idea of like, your vote counts. People in New York are like, oh, New York always goes blue, whatever, like, fuck off. Yeah. If I don't vote, it doesn't matter because New York is going blue. But the reason I caution against this idea of like us being aware of how much we're surrounded by red is so that we don't become these swing states. Because like, if if a bunch of New Yorkers got lazy, if thousands of New Yorkers got lazy, but a, a thousands of Trump supporters were not lazy, New York could have been a swing state unexpectedly, frankly, because it is so deeply red outside of the, the, the city and we just have a large ass city. So when I look at Georgia, you know, I often like, I, especially this year, I was like, you know, a lot of times you look at the South and you're like, oh, whatever, no hope for the South, you're gonna go red no matter what. But we actually can't keep doing that. We actually have to start creating room to talk about the actual work that's happening on the ground and understanding that it is work and why it, it takes so much work to beat the misconceptions that we as Northerners have of the South and all of the states of the South. So big shout outs to Georgia. We still have, um, I think Arizona, what is it Arizona or Nevada? One of, one of the two are still- oh, Nevada. 
are not officially, officially called yet. Um, and we, you know, Pennsylvania, honestly, like I was just like nervous as a New Yorker who's so close to Pennsylvania. I'm just like, we think we got to go too deep down for the, the South experience where all we need to do is try to go to fucking Sesame Place. Just try to get to Sesame Place, bitch, in, in Pennsylvania and yeah. all the way to Sesame Street. <laughs> You'll see a lot of Trump supporters and that is our country and that's the reality. But hopefully we will keep the same energy. I hope that it was not just with the voting booth. Everybody who showed up to vote, I hope that they show up to to come to participate in this democracy to some way, shape, or form. Whether it's you know trying to do marijuana reform, which I'm really excited for now because they did say that low key they were going to make the whole United States legal if they were. I'm holding them to that promise because the first thing I wanted to do when I found out that they want was light ones. So I want to make sure that we gonna hold them to a lot of these campaign promises that they was talking about. Oh, can I have some? Okay. All right, so now we're moving into our Tuta Loca S section where we are shouting out motherfuckers for doing the most. Now, motherfuckers in this case is us. Us as in the United States. United States as in the coronavirus numbers are go are jumping. Tis the season for flus and colds and people are out here sick, not sure if they got corona or if they just have a regular cold. Um, we're seeing a big increase in numbers. Like, yes, we still have a big... Um, like the, the increase in cases in states like Illinois and Texas is super high, right? And in Florida also still high. We have death tolls. We have cities like Texas reporting over 100 deaths during the day. Um, in New York right now, we're looking at anywhere upwards from 3,000 cases a day and about 20 deaths a day. Every life is precious, period. Mm. Despite the numbers. Right now, I'm in a place where I have family members who have coronavirus right now. And I think that it was both, it was super jarring to have to hear that someone in my family had coronavirus, especially because we'd made it so many months in and I, and like, we were good. Like we, as in my family, we were good. Um, we were still being cautious. Like we, by no means were we trying to like wild out. If anything, I'm the wildest one of the bunch because I've traveled, I've gone to Colorado, Ooh. I've gone to Los Angeles since the pandemic. Um, and frankly would probably go somewhere else given the opportunity. Um, and, and so like as somebody who's wild out, but is still seeing that like the numbers are jumping around them, I'm still scared. And I do think that, um, especially with this like democratic win and the holidays coming up that people are gonna be feeling themselves mm -hmm. a bit much and they're gonna be a little too excited and we're gonna see these numbers go crazy. I mean, on Halloween, the last episode we had, we talked about this party in the Bronx on Halloween that was 550 people in a warehouse. And it's just kind of like, 550 people doesn't sound like a lot until you realize that each of these people, if they have something, can be super spreaders. And then suddenly, this one party can be the center of a big spread in New York City, for example, right? So I'm just kind of like weak, a little too comfortable. We got to slow the fuck down. I'm scared still. My family, like immediate family of mine has coronavirus right now. And thank goodness they're not hospitalized. But the reality is, is that I am someone who is immunocompromised and I could very I could very easily be hospitalized. And so that reality smack, super important. So I'm just curious for you guys, like how have you guys been keeping up with your Corona statuses? Are y'all still as cautious as you guys think you were in the beginning of the pandemic? What are you seeing? How are you feeling entering this winter? Just curious about our thoughts. Um, I think for me, I know that I've definitely calmed down from where I was at the beginning. I kind of, I think at the very beginning, I went into like a hyper, like, 
buying all the Clorox sprays and spraying everything down, like, and, and, you know, just like being constantly, constantly, constantly doing it excessively when I actually wasn't even leaving the house. Um, I've left the house and I have traveled. I went to Puerto Rico and I went to LA during the pandemic. So like, I've, I have chilled out a little bit, but I also have been kind of just like wary about like, cause we knew that this would happen. We knew that once flu season came around, we would see a rise in the numbers. Yeah. So I think that in us knowing that it's, it's our job to just be more vigilant and be more like aware of what we're doing. And if that just means that you're not going out as much, then bitch is getting cold, like stay home. You know, Zoom parties, Zoom parties worked in March, they'll work in November and they'll work in December too. Um, so I think that like, we just gotta kind of like suck it up and, and do what we gotta do to maintain our own health. I personally, I got sick last week. I had a cold and I'm just getting over it, but that freaked me out the, like, because I was like having chills and like sneezing and all this stuff. And I was like, ah, but you know, you, you go, you get tested, you find out if you have it or not, and then you take care of your health and you, you do what you gotta do to keep yourself and others safe. And I think that that's the most important thing that we could do. <laughs> sure, John, what about you? Yeah, um, I have a few opinions on that. And I think my first is that I think it boils down to the person. And I think we have a lot of people in this world who skew between very um, risk avoidant. So like, just like fly by the seat of your pants, right? So I would classify myself as somebody who was more likely to engage in risk, who was just like, it sounds fun. However said, in this kind of scenario, right? Uh, to speak realistically to coronavirus, um, I've been in situations to where people are going to gather and it's usually like, if it's like five or more people and it's gonna be indoors, I had it, to give you two examples. Uh, at the beginning of October, uh, my friend went to do a birthday party down in North Carolina, but her requirement was that like, before you come down, you have to have a confirmed negative COVID test. We all confirmed, we all went down to North Carolina. It felt no types of ways because we just, you know, kicked it at the, kicked it at the crib. We all knew we were good, right? We had with her parents who immunocompromised or not, like it felt good, right? I went to a party last weekend, it was Halloween, um, and it was, it was suggested. It wasn't like mandated. It was like a, you know, come to this party if you will, but like by coming to this party, you understand the risks involved with coronavirus. And like, you know, if you feel susceptible or if you feel like you may have come into contact with somebody, you get a test, right? So I went to that party too. And I had people who I ran, you know, who like my girlfriend, for example, she was like, I will not see you after that party until you get a COVID test, which mm -hmm. is very much fair, right? Like, I think now we're at the point of like, I feel like we have a good understanding logically of what, you know, of the risks involved and like how we can handle it. And I always, I will always err on the side of the most cautious person if it's a group thing and it's a group decision, right? But for me personally, 
Like I still went to that party knowing that there were people who could have been there. We were inside, you know, we were masks off. Like I went to that party because I trusted people. So like, this is, this is the part of COVID that I think we're entering of like having to trust your people, your peers. And I won't say that scientifically, that's the best decision. Like I totally understand anybody who disagrees with that, you know, and anybody who says, I'm going to make moves based on the worst case scenario. Because the worst case scenario of COVID, especially if you're immunocompromised, is being on a ventilator, is being in a situation to where we have record number of hospitalizations, record numbers of you know, people being intubated and doctors having to make decisions that are not personal about you know, who to save, you know, who to put on a, you know, on a ventilator and who not. I don't want to put anybody in that position. Word. Word. And honestly, like, I think for me, like I said, I've wilded out. And for me, wilding out has been, oh, you're getting on a plane. You're wild. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, that's been my wilding out. Otherwise, I spend a lot of time in my house. Otherwise, yes, I'm on Tinder and Hinge. But even when I match, I haven't even really been striking up the conversation because I'm like, really about to fuck these motherfuckers without really knowing. Like, you know, like, I've actually, there are parts, and I, and that is crucial for me. I just want to make that clear. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think dating is super crucial. Like, I'm this pussy. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, to make sure I'm being safe because I got nieces, I got parents, I got, pe- I got people in my life who I'm always yeah. going to see, who I want to be readily available to at any moment without questions asked, be able to be in a room with. And I feel like I'm compromising them. And so I always have to play this game where I'm sacrificing. And for me, again, the big sacrifices around the pussy and meeting new people, because otherwise I only really fuck with my crew. <laughs> you know what I mean? Otherwise, really you know, the New York Dose, Gerard, my sister, like, I'm really only staying with the with the immediate crew anyway, right? So I think it's important that we do stay ready to be safe. I do think that it is important that we also, I think for me, the biggest point is that I realize that even the, the guidance that we got back in March is not the guidance that we're getting now here in November. And so for a lot of us who tuned out of those daily briefings and shit like that, it is good for us to do an, another little like quick just catch up, like how long is the shit living on surfaces and just really getting our numbers straight so that even while we're trying to celebrate the holidays, because this is a season that's upon us. We're trying to do Thanksgiving, yeah. we're trying to do Christmas. Everybody's trying to do New Year. Cause if none of the other two count, you know, definitely on December 31st, niggas is trying to get all the way turned to throw 2020 out the fucking window that we understand what our updated guidances are and how we're respecting that or not respecting that to John's point so that we are clear on how we can be the safest while doing something that is very clearly unsafe deemed by the CDC. So yeah, you know, just wanted to bring it up. Just wanted to say the numbers are going up. We are celebrating. We are in now a new democratic situation, but the reality is that coronavirus is still here and, and Joe Biden does not have a magic antidote. So we, we are still responsible for our own healing despite the fact that we feel like we're moving forward so just wanted to say that oh this looks good oh my god this is delicious i definitely want to taste that mm. oh my god all right and now we are moving into our main topic of the day our plate of the day uh we need you uncle sam says but you are black in the military. And John, we just want to unpack with you your experience with the military and what that has been like as a black man in America. So my first question to you, John, is 
what was your perception of the military prior to even joining? And what was your relationship with it? Sure. I, I think the second question is like very key to understanding my whole thought process on all this, right? So um, to, to answer your second question, to kind of revert back to the first of uh, my relationship to the military, like all growing up was that um, my father served in the military. So when I was adopted by my family, my father was an active duty uh, army enlisted member. And he was like the grunt, like he was in the, he was infantry. They're like the, like there's enlisted in the officer structure, the office, the officer structure is more like admin, like more overseeing kind of shit. And the, you know, the enlisted is more like, they're like cannon fodder. They're like, if there's a war popping off, like you gone. You know, and that's what I understood about my dad before I even understood the concept of military was that like my pops was going to be like if there was war popping off, like my dad's the first one to go. So the first seven years of my life, I spent on a military base and, you know, especially again, being enlisted, you don't have a choice in where you choose to live. Like, <clears throat> excuse me, when you're enlisted, you get stationed somewhere and they're just like you live on this street. You do not get to pick your neighbors. You do not get to pick any sort of amenities. Like it just is what it is. And I am grateful for that, honestly. Like, especially growing up in Georgia and growing up in a black family of like, I got, I, we got placed into this cul-de-sac. There was one neighbor, there was one playground and it was this like big, huge circle around that. And it was just like, our parents would send us out for the day. They would go, you know, handle their business, go to work, right? We would be on the split ground all day. And we would be, you know, be the black kids playing with black kids playing with Martin Luther King's dream, right? <laughs> and there was no sense of, there was no danger. It wasn't like the lights, you know, the lights came on and you had to go home. It was like the lights came on and if you weren't home, then it was a safe assumption that you were with somebody else's family. And no matter whose family that was, there wasn't this sense of like, oh shit, I got to go get them. Like it wasn't like, okay, you know, he's playing with, you know, my, my first best friend was a little white kid and Michael. It wasn't like Michael's family was like, oh shit, we got John over here and like, he's got to go home. Or if it was like, we're sending him home, he could just walk on the street by himself. Like there was very much a sense of community, very much a sense of, and I think coming from the military mindset of like, we have a greater enemy, regardless of what's happening in, you know, within our own walls, we have a greater enemy. So, you know, if John is hanging out with Michael and people don't like that, who cares? Because there's, a, there's an active enemy out there that people will get deployed to go fight against that, you know, presents a greater threat to our nation. Um, so for me, I didn't understand race and or racism until I moved away from that. My dad retired from the military and retired from the army and we moved to the neighboring county. And I can, you can look this up today. If you look at uh, Muskogee County, Muskogee County in Georgia uh, uh, holds Fort Benning, which is the biggest army base in the world. This is how they tap themselves. If you look at Muskogee County's vote numbers today, they're very blue, which is surprising, honestly. But if you look at all, all of the neighboring counties, like what you were saying earlier of, um, you know, you're in, you're in a blue pocket, but you're surrounded by red. If you look at Harris County, where I actually spent most of my formative years growing up, like that's where you see the heavy, like 
heavily skewed white, heavily skewed Republican, heavily skewed, like, you're not one of us, get the fuck out kind of people to where I didn't understand that until I left the base. Yeah, and I and I honestly, like, even you he- hearing you say that, it's just so, because the military is used as such a device, as such a political device, and, I, and I'll say for the past four years especially, and, and actually maybe longer than that, because I don't think, or at least my perception of Obama was that he did not misuse the military, but I'll go back as far as uh, Bush, George W. Bush. To me, the military is automatically Republican, period. Like there's no like debate in between, because to me at the end of the day, even though we have individual sh- soldiers on the ground who have their beliefs, which I know because I have a cousin who served a few tours in Iraq, Okay, so like I knew that there's somebody who I loved very intimately who was part of this monster that I viewed as a a Republican monster who wasn't a Republican. So I know the soldiers aren't all one monolith, but I thought as an institution, frankly, that the power held in one place aligned with the Democratic, I mean, the Republican Party at all times. And that's my perception. Yeah, I'd love to to give you two points of that. Number one, I agree with you very much on principle, right? Like to me, in my opinion, if you were to ask me today, I think that the military is the greatest, is the biggest fraternity in the nation. Mm-hmm. And in most nations, it's the biggest fraternity, right? When you think about fraternity life, when you think about the, again, I'm generalizing, right? But like, if you're generalizing like fraternization and like this like big coalition of like mostly men people, right? Like it very much centers around like rejecting strength, around like eradicating enemies, around like eliminating individual thought, right? So while you might say I have a cousin or I have a so-and-so, you know, who thinks differently, the military mindset is that individual thoughts are not welcome here because they endanger you you endanger the entire troop, the entire squad by going rogue, right? So I hear that on I hear that on multiple points. I will say to that is that you know while that may be true, let's also think historically, and let's also remember the I remember what I said earlier about greater enemies. So you know when you think about integration, integration honestly, there's a lot of historical references that point to integration happening first in the military. About we have this foreign threat right? Like it becomes less about internal racism within America and more about nationalism and more about being an American because we have this foreign threat who is threatening our way of life. Let's all come together and fight. You have the Tuskegee Airmen, you have, you know, these instances. And again, especially with enlisted lifestyle of these groups that are forced to live together and live among each other, because it's not about, you know, at the end of the day, you know, they think like, it's not about who you're going to shoot. Are you capable of shooting a gun? Are you capable of taking down an enemy who says America sucks? I don't care if you're black, white, whatever. Like you're capable of fighting alongside me to defeat this like, uh, you know, external enemy who threatens all of our institutions, which is like an interesting catch 22. You know, I feel like, I feel like the military got that heat when I was mostly growing up of like, how dare you be a black man serving in the military? Like you're serving this like racist ass organization. And now we have that with the police, right? Like now we're coming after black police officers and we're like, you serve this institution that is was founded to like fuck our people up, you know? So it's like, 
again, they're, they're, they, the military and the police are two different organizations, but like there's a lot of commonalities, especially being one of the minorities within those organizations that you have to question and you have to like kind of reckon with about like, am I serving, am I serving this to like help myself get ahead versus like by serving this, do I do my people a disservice in the long run? Exactly. And I, and I think that that for me is the caveat that has made this, this topic because you're now our third uh, military related adjacent person that we've had on for this topic. And I think that for me that that's always been the caveat. It's like, okay, we're here, we're here, we're here for this country, we're here to do what we have to do. What is this institution doing for us? But before we even dive into those specifics, I want to know like, well, shit, you joined the military. Like, what like you know why why did you join and what was the response to the people around you in your life when you made this decision Oof. <laughs> uh, heavy <laughs> uh real heavy and i'm out of track damn no um here's what i'll say so in the time in which i was heavily influenced to join the military um, the heavy influence came from my parents right so mom is very German. Uh, she's an immigrant, you know, very much like, you know, I handle myself. Like I came over here. I didn't know English. Like I had to get by, you know, my father is also military. He's an army brat, you know, well, he's an army kid. And he's very much like, you know, I built my own. I came from two parents who were like, we built for ourselves. We don't see you building for yourself in college. Like it looks like you're in this position of like figuring out your identity. You hadn't quite figured it out. Cool but we're not going to support you while you do that. So you need that help. Here's where you can get medical benefits. Here's where you can get like a steady paycheck. You know, here's all those things. And growing up in Georgia, that is very common, right? Like, I think the military is a, it's touted, like I took the SATs and I took the ASVAB at the same time, right? And I did very well on both. So I had military recruiters. And I had colleges calling me at the same time of like, continue your education, continue your career here. So it's like this equal, it's an equal pull, which I feel like Northerners don't really get, like, they don't get that same pull, right? So for me, I got to a point to where I was doing the college route and I wasn't doing it right. And that was just on my own personal shit, right? But I got to a point to where the military seemed like a viable option. I will also caveat that and say, I had long ass dreadlocks at the time. Like I had my hair and my hair, my hair it's in and of itself was a rebellion, right? Not only to my military father who like took me to the military barbershops and like all they do is one fade, you know? And my mother who's just like, this is out of the norm, like what gives, you know? Like that in and of itself was a rebellion. And I felt like, oh my God, my hair, like that's my Samsonite strength. So to have to lose that to join the military, like they were hitting me up in high school when I had these, you know, when I had my afro and I had my dreads and they're like, you should join the military. And I'm like, but why? Or like, you know, cool, let's talk about it. And they were like, well, you have to cut your hair. And I'm like, nope, like, that's it. That's it, it was really on the hair. Like that was really it. So like having to like get to that point to where like I really felt like I cut off my, literally cut off my identity and like had to like take all of that off. I lost five pounds that night, no cap. Like in a grocery bag the night before I went to basic training, I lost five pounds in the form of hair. It was just like, it really felt like I lost myself, you know? And 
So there were so many things that were driving me to that, right? Like I had gotten sick and my parents were like, you know, we're not going to foot this bill. Like you got to figure it out. You got to be your, you got to be your own man or like be your own person at that point, right? Which is not a sentiment that I would necessarily wish upon my future generation. Like, especially as we have come across, you know, talking to your kids about growing into individualism and adults, but like, that's the generation that my parents came from. So that's what they were trying to, you know, imprint upon me. And I respect it in that sense of like, they were trying to build me to be an individual person, but I had a lot of issues with making that decision to join the military and join, especially as a baby child and especially as somebody who like very much values individualism and like having your own free thought of joining an organization that like very much actively discourages that. Yeah. And yeah, that's lovely. I'm actually not even going to side talk to that. I'm going to just go straight into the, the next question. So what were your first impressions of the military then when you joined officially? Sure. Um, I think my first impressions were that it was just like with anything, any other educational institute that I had at that point was that this is easy. Like I came up to school very easily. Like I adapt very easily. It's just like, if you give me instructions on how to do something, I'm going to excel at it was my thought process at that time. So, you know, in basic training, I was a little bit older because I had been to college a couple of years. And, you know, it was like your punishment for doing something wrong was, I'll give you an example. Your punishment for doing something wrong was push-ups. It was like, you didn't make your bed perfectly, that's push-ups. And it's like, okay, like, you're not going to hit me because I grew up and if I didn't do something that somebody told me to do, I might get checked across the face. You can't do that? Well, then what's the worst you're going to do? You're going to yell at me? Like, okay. <laughs> like, it, it was that thing of like, it was like the B-Rab, <laughs> like punishments of like, if I just get ahead of the narrative, right? Like if I just get ahead of that and understand your worst case scenario, then it's not going to be so bad. And that's where like really like, like in basic training, like the the TIs or the drill instructors and all that, they lose their power. They lose their power when the people understand that the worst that you're going to do to me is not that bad. Like we got to a point where it was like, we looked forward to doing push-ups. It was like, I'm getting stronger, like bad, like flip the bed, who cares? We'll put the bed back together and do some push-ups, whatever, you know? Mm-hmm. And once we have that power, it really like flipped those tables and we stopped getting that punishment. It was, it stopped being, it stopped being a punishment because we looked at it as like, oh, this is fun, you know? Mm -hmm. And it helped our PT scores and it helped, you know, it helped the things at the end of it all. So I think my, my view of the military is that it can be very scary for somebody who has no, who doesn't know, who doesn't have the keys, like who doesn't have the like, they can only do so much. Like, and honestly, for me, it's like, they can't put your hands on you. Like, you're not gonna win with me like that. Like, everywhere I've been, it's- Yeah, that's actually a good question, sideways. Because like, I always, when I see them yelling in your face like that, and I'm like, I wish a motherfucker would drill sergeant my my fucking face like that. And if I know them niggas can't touch me, there it's a wrap. Like, so is that a rule? Like, are they not allowed to hit you? Because in my head- In the Air Force, that's a no. I can't say that for I can't say that for every institution, and I can't say that for especially especially the more rigorous like you know you have your general 
I, I feel like there's a big misconception when you see a military commercial, it always shows the extreme. It shows you like flying helicopter and like parachuting into like enemy territory. For the most part, that's not going to happen. The majority of people, this is, this is kind of scary and true, but the majority of people in the military serve in a security forces position. They mm -hmm. are cops. The, the mm -hmm. threshold for getting into the military, for, for example, I'll give you my example. Uh, I got an IT. The ASVAB score, which is like the SATs of the military, uh, the score for that was very high because you have to have a lot of like different skill sets, right? But the absolute bare minimum, like if you could have any job in the Air Force, I only speak for the Air Force, but I know this is true across all military branches, is the lowest score is either supply or security forces. Mm -hmm. Cops and people who hand out basketballs and shit at the gym, right? Which when you think about it on the, in like the national scene and outside the military too, is terrifying. Mm -hmm. is you're giving these people the opportunity to enforce rules to serve in you know a position of power but not quite grasp how like power structures and shit work and i and that is not to say i will caveat that to say that is not to say that all cops are shitty and that you know they're all dumb and all that stuff right like there are plenty of people who join and serve and you know do that to fulfill the duties but i will say that there's a much bigger threshold for the jobs of like IT and the jobs of other, you know, especially the ones that they show in the commercials versus what people end up actually doing. And what did you actually end up doing? I ended up doing, my official title was cyber transport technician, which sounds like so fucking crazy. Like, it sounds like, like it sounds like Space Force. I'm actually salty. Yeah. Actually, my <laughs> it my sounds like Back to the Future, right? Like, I'm salty. I'm traveling. Like. <laughs> I'm salty that Donald Trump created the Space Force after I had served because I would have been a dope uniform. But that said, <laughs> that said, that was my job. Like my job is what I now do at WeWork, and like I would not do. I did four years in the military, and I'm very grateful for those years. But also I have authority issues. I'm a baby child, fuck all that. I'm an Aquarius, fuck all that. So <laughs> I wouldn't do it again, but I wouldn't be where I was without all of those things in place. I wouldn't be in the position that I am now and be able to especially handle like constantly changing structures and like, you know, um, people trying to tell me what to do <laughs> if I didn't have that foundation laid into place. Word. And like, and, and we see like, listen, in recent years with Donald Trump as president and like, again, the perception of this idea that like the military has to align with whoever the president is regardless, period, like it doesn't matter. Like we have seen certain policies that have been tried to be pushed. I'm thinking specifically of the trans community. Um, that feels really um, problematic. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, things like that. For me make me question is the military even inclusive like is the military an inclusive space and if so how and if not why not and i'm curious your thoughts on that job sure yeah i mean i think that's a i think that's 100 like a like not only a great question but just like so much to unpack and here's how i will approach that number one i'll say that 
I think that the public perception of the military is that they're not inclusive. And I think that it's totally fair and valid. I will say that having been within the system for a period of time and like having come up within that culture, there are some nuances and contexts that need to be put into place before coming to that conclusion. Right. Um, and my context of nuances is that, yes, there have been executive orders and decrees that are aimed specifically at, you know, when it comes to especially like gender reassignment surgeries and like getting the, you know, getting the adequate health care that you would need in order to, you know, be able to maintain, you know, maintain yourself just, you know, on a healthy basis. Those have waned in the years of Rep in Republican rule. I 100% agree with that. I think I caution against the generalization of the military as a non-inclusive organization when it comes to understanding um, why. I, I think I think I just caution against the understanding of the why mm. and. The reason that I would caution against that is because I think that the military's healthcare system is broken and flawed in and of itself. Like when you think about, especially when you think about war and when you think about us in wartime and you think about the mental health services that are offered to people and you think about, you know, people who get deployed and come back and they're not all the way quite right. You know, they come back a different person than how they left and the services that are offered to them. The military does not think long-term in those senses. So therefore, when it comes to, especially somebody thinking about who they are as a person and that being a long-term journey and experience for themselves, that the military is just not equipped for that long-term journey for anybody, for anybody, for anybody who says like, I may have been born a man, but I don't feel that way inside. The military is not equipped for that. Because again, that exists outside of a norm, outside of a standard. You cannot write, you cannot write a, like a technical order. You cannot write something into like a military constitution that addresses that because all of those situations are nuanced and the military is very much designed against that. Like mm -hmm. the idea is that you do not think outside the norm so that you can comply so that you can listen with these orders. And that is very difficult to reckon with, especially as somebody who is a minority and who is somebody who identifies differently from most of the majority of the people in the military of just like, how do I get individual help? How do I get that kind of service that I need to perform effectively. I will say that that was different under the Obama years of like, for example, I was deployed in Afghanistan and, you know, during those years, Obama didn't see the need for troops, so many troops to be in Afghanistan. So he said, pull them back, right? During those years, the expansions for the, uh, for VA, for, you know, the medical care that people, that military vets needed, that all increased under the Obama but I feel like, in my opinion, Republicans look at that as the same way they'd look at welfare, the same way they'd look at, you know, most social service programs and just like, 
It's just going to be people mooching off of this who don't actually need it without truly understanding the individual needs of the people who are actually applying for that. Yeah, no, 100%. I feel like that to be in the military in general is to risk being sort of clumped with these ideals and, and like uh, misconceptions just automatically. Like I said, I have somebody in the military in my family and I know them very well. I don't know what they believe. Maybe like the back of my hand, I would say, you know what I mean? Because we talk about it. We talk about these things and still what they represent does not necessarily align with what the representation of the military itself is that I receive as a civilian who's not part of the military in, in, in any way, shape or form. Um, I also often think about though, John, like what must, it must be really difficult though to, to see that your organization is being aligned with things in a time where who you are as a, as a person, yeah. not aligned with a lot of- Oh, for sure. <laughs> with the military. Oh, for it's sure. aligned with. So like, how do you guys, on an individual level, get to have your voices in this space that you are sort of a comrade of while being like, yeah, I'm a, mili I'm, I'm a person who serves in the military or has served in the past in the military, but I believe X, Y, Z things. How much does the organization leave room for that sort of rhetoric versus how we, how the country itself leaves room for the opinion that you have as, as, a, as a veteran? I got you. Can I answer that question after I take a quick bathroom break? Oh, yes, please, because I also need to pee. So that's <laughs> I, was just, I was just ready to hold my piss. But oh, I know. I need a drink and a refill. <laughs> and this episode, Skittles, I'm writing it down because what I was, I'm writing all the like time stops and starts. Because <laughs> <laughs> what I can do, but I am going to go pee. I'll be right back. <laughs> What you blowing on? <laughs> you got some indica, you got some sativa. <coughs> this is um, Gorilla Glue. Oh, damn, you were still able to converse? <laughs> <laughs> I should have you You love to see it. Yeah, I would I would smoke on cam, but this would not be a conversation at that point. It'd just be me uh -huh. goofy ass shows and like giving you the rundown for it. Oh wow. I'm lit. All right. 
I'm, I'm rapidly climbing. Go to the bathroom to assess your litness. You yeah. You look at yourself in the mirror. You're like, in the mirror, you're just get like, yourself, get yourself together. I'm underestimating how little I drink because like, I don't drink very often. Yeah. And the fact that this bottle of wine is down to one serving at this mm-hmm. point. And I opened it right before we started. So. Ooh. Yeah, have drink it fast is what I realized. I was like, oh, that means you've been drinking it fast. Mm-hmm. Um, um, all right. So the last question I had asked was around. Um, your, I, I remember you were asking. About, <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. You were asking about you know how I contend with my individuality in a system that. Yes. Yes. So so, <laughs> tell us a little bit about. For sure. Um, I think just by default, my personality, again, is very much rebellious, is very much smallest, you know, youngest child, very much, you know, I'm going to do my own thing. Um, So how that, you know, presents itself in the military is that, yes, I understand that ideas and things, thoughts that I may have that may, you know, differ from the norm are not going to be easily and readily accepted but that does not stop me from making them like i have always felt like i have been in a position or i have always been raised to believe that if you have a thought or you have an idea that you know may go against the grain present it anyways you know that's what my german mother taught me and that's what my military father taught me they both taught me that in different aspects my mother taught me how to go hard on that about how to like when you make your point known, have the receipts because people are going to just by default question you. And that, I mean, I think that to me, especially on a, on a greater non-military point is how you deal with people on social media. Like social media, people come with all sorts of opinions and thoughts and ideas. And it's just like, okay, we'll show your work, you know, have the receipts. And then the way that my father presented that to me was more within the military um, aspect of like being able to talk to your superiors you know being able to go against the grain without seeming like you're compromising the overall mission and that is very like both of those things are very nuanced of like it's very hard I will say you know knowing that I I, the way that I believe is that the military has been a, a, a tool used by mostly the Republican Party to say that, like, even in this election, it's like Trump's like, we'll wait till the absentee ballots from the military come in. And that's an assumption that all those votes will be, you know, will skew Republican and, right. you know, will skew when we talk about gun rights and all that stuff. Like, it's always that assumption that the military will buy into that. When I can say that working from within, for the most part, the, the primary reason why. why military people vote Republican is because the Republican constituents tend to give the military the greatest pay increases. Mm. Like when it looks, when you look at your yearly, how am I getting more money? Republicans tend to give those greater, it's usually between, I'm going to say two and 5%. Mm. And they tend to be lower during the Democrat years. Like Obama did not give, I think the average is about, I think three to three and a half percent. Obama wasn't hitting that. So it was like, he got to go because he's not putting money in my pockets, right? So for me, that wasn't my issue. 
right? Like I saw, you know, I also saw less money coming in my pockets, but for me, it was less about that and more about what are we doing overseas? What are our foreign interests? Like what do other countries think of us and how are, you know, like foreign relations, right? Especially when I got to Afghanistan, you know, and I'm glad that I went to Afghanistan in the Obama era because people still looked at us a little bit more favorably. Mm-hmm. It was less about you're coming to bomb us and fuck us up versus like, you know, you're here to, when I went, when I went to Afghanistan, we helped develop the Afghan Air Force. So they were like, I would literally be overseas, like I would literally like be on base and it wasn't a base, it was just like a bunch of sand. And like, we would be driving around and there would be like planes that were like, they would hit the airfield and you could tell these, it was worse than Spirit Airlines, you know what I'm saying? It was like, which is saying a lot, which was like, you could see these planes like landing all awkwardly, like worse than Denzel Washington on flight, <laughs> like just this crazy shit, right? And you're like, wow, like for me, it was like, this is, this is kind of what we're doing. This is the positive side that I can see of like giving adequate training to people to handle their own business, which as me as an individualist loves to see. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to contend with that when the general, um, the general thought process behind the entire organization is that we're gun toting, like liquor free, you know, liquor, no tax at the liquor store, people, <laughs> which if you're not taking advantage of that, you're playing yourself. <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know it's just like it's contending with both and for me it was like you always going to know who I am uniform or nah which is what I can say the same for WeWork right like WeWork gives you swag they give you you know basically a uniform so many companies give you a uniform to wear and they say yo wear the jersey and rep the team and I'm like I'm not doing that unless you sign me to the Supermax contract unless you know if I get injured or hurt in some way, then you have, you know, I know I have your full support. Yeah. I, I love actually, like, I'd love to hear before you even keep going into the deeper politics of the military itself. I'd just love to hear from you, John, like given the politics around it, but what was your experience? What did you learn? What are some misconceptions outside of some of the ones you've already listed that yeah. people have about the experience of a black person deciding that they're gonna join the military and they're going to support in this cause that seems to be against them? Because again, if the idea or the rule of thumb is this is a white supremacist system, so everything we do still feeds white supremacy to some degree, is that fully true? And how does the, your experience in the military confirm or deny some of Thank you for thank you for clarifying that because I realized it didn't I did like hell and track off that point. I would say that for me, uh, joining the military as a black man, I kind of gave you the story about having to cut off my dreads, right? right. So for me, it, before before day one, before day one of basic training, that represented to me an idea of cutting off my individualism, which I had worked so hard to get. I couldn't even grow that hair out until I was 18 and I moved out of the house, right? Keep in mind that my father was military, my mother was, you know, my mother was German. So like, for me, that represented the antithesis of of what the military represented, right? So when I had to actually cut all that back and like actually join this thing, 
for me, I was very upset. I had a lot of anger and my relationship with my parents deteriorated during that period, right? To give extra levels to that as a black man was that it was, it, I grew up in, in Columbus around Fort Benning, right? And then when I go back there now, if you go out to the bars, it's very much the stereotype of like, there are dudes out here trying to get married next week and also cheat on their lives when they're on deployment, right? Like I grew up around military culture so that even if I wasn't one myself, I had a very good understanding of like what that was like. Right. So to have to, you know, I had recruiters assistance opportunities, which is basically like you go to a, you go near a base, they give you like certain places to go hit and you like basically recruit from the military. And I took mine in Tampa or in Sarasota, Florida. Um, and where I took mine is very interesting. Sarasota is just an interesting place. I know Sarasota. I've, I've, I spent beach, baby. A lot right? of retired people. Right. Yeah. It's a lot of old retired people who have a lot of respect for the military. Right. So when I went, I had people trying to buy my groceries and shit. And it was like, I didn't join the, I joined the military to be independent. So hearing somebody be like, I'll buy your groceries or like, you know, I'm willing, thank you for your service threw me off. Like I'll say to this day, Veterans Day is on Tuesday. Mm -hmm. I still feel some type of way when somebody's like, thank you for your service. Hmm. Because like, you would do this too if this was your job. Like if this was the primary way that you could support your own, like, and that's what you did. Like nobody, you don't thank other people just for doing their job. Like whatever, you know, I don't, I'm not saying like, oh my God, I don't say to you yearly, thank you for hosting this podcast. <laughs> you know? It's like, it, to me, that just doesn't register. So for me being in that position and having somebody thank me for something like that, and especially being a black man and being thanked <laughs> was like really mm -hmm. confusing. It was like, what do you like? my parents didn't thank me for doing my chores. <laughs> like, you know, why are you thanking me now? Or why are you trying to do extra shit for me now that you wouldn't, if I wasn't wearing this uniform, you wouldn't offer to buy my groceries. So like, what about this uniform changes that? That's mm. very bizarre for me, especially as a black man, right? So to combat with that, and also I think for me over time, I, the, the, the position that I sit at now is that I left the military. I knew when I signed up, I was doing a four-year agreement. I won't say it was a jail sentence, but I will say that I knew that I was getting out after four. Like I knew I wasn't going to reenlist. My dad was a career military man. He did 20 years. He still goes on base every day. And I love him for that. Like that's the type of person that he is. I knew immediately upon day one that that was not for me, but I would not be in the position that I am at now if it weren't for those military years. I have a security clearance. I still work in IT. I still deal with people trying to tell me what the fuck to do that I don't necessarily care for. You know, I'm very grateful for that, right? So... For me, I'm in this complicated position, especially when talking to young black men who are like, should I join the military of like, I don't think that I dissuade anybody from joining the military, but. Oh, you muted yourself, John. Sorry. 
I think it's very important to give context, to give like, you need to have, I would like to give people more than what I had when I made that decision to join the military, mm-hmm. when I give it to other people. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that that's great. And honestly, like, I guess for me, again, a lot of the exploration of this dialogue comes around this idea that I know I am A, not in the military, be like have only what people have told me about the military and don't think that it's something that I in in the way I have strong opinions about should be yelling yelling about on the mountaintops without having full context actually ask it you have a question that you want to ask ask it (laughs) (laughs) no 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 I'm, I'm prefacing that to say like you know like I think that there's a way in which those of us who are not in the military actually don't understand the military we need to start accepting the fact that like even though we're like oh make peace not war that's a great statement and that's a great stance to have what does that actually mean in terms of the organism and how it works and the people who are choosing to participate because again my part my my particular experience with the military is more around which is to the leading question that i was getting to around the fact that like there's tons of different jobs and in our last and in two episodes ago we had Adisa Jabril who's in the military as well but she's part of the band and the chorus and it's just like what y'all got a band in the chorus for what so like I the question I wanted to ask you is like to your point about like all the politics around it the military itself whether it's army navy whatever the fuck there are jobs that are just legitimate jobs that I could say either you're doing it in the US Army or the US Navy or the US Marines, or you're doing it in Hollywood or you're doing, like there's just certain roles that exist. And so one of the things that had surfaced for us in our episode with Adiza was this idea that like, yes, she's in the military course, but the military course is not coming to black and brown communities looking for the same, right? So like a lot of times when you have a lot of people who are super patriotic and back the military who tend to be Republican. Again, I'm putting it in air quotes because being a Republican means so many different things than it did even just like, you know, like eight years ago. Um, So like that, that the idea of that is that perhaps the recruitment strategies, that perhaps our misconception comes from the recruitment strategies that, that the military has. And so I'm interested for you, like, do you think that there is room in the military um, to expand the way that people of color get to engage being in the military and what their experience is in the military? Because you were in IT. I don't know the stats around how many people of color were among you, but I'm curious to hear, like, where do you see the majority of black and brown bodies put together in the military during your time of service? This is the best question. This is by far the best question. And it's like almost my recruitment pitch, right? So for one, I'm gonna call back to, if you look at a commercial for any of the armed forces, Army, Air Force, Navy, Marines, all that, they show the extreme. They show you in some sort of combat simulation. They show you like fucking somebody up, right? That is the, number one, statistically speaking, only 1% of the entire American population is in the military, right? To speak even further to that, 1% of that 1% are the people who land in those roles. Mm -hmm. So what you're looking at, the advertisement that's being displayed to you is not what you're going to do. Like, it's just, that's just facts. Like, plenty of people go into these, like, 
the Navy SEALs program, the Army PJ program, like even the infantry, like the Ranger program, they go through all these programs and they fail out at some point for some reason. It's mostly, it's mostly health related. It's mostly like you got a bum ankle, you got asthma, you know, you got something that like prevents you from doing the thing on the commercial that they want you to do. But that is what drives people to join. So it's like, even if I end up handing up basketballs, I joined the military because I wanted to be this like, you know, insane jump out of a parachute and fuck up all the terrorists kind of person. So for me, it's like realistically explaining to people of like, this is your realistic, you know, life choice. And especially as a black man, it's like, you don't see Negroes in this commercial. <laughs> like, relax. Like, relax. Like, you're not a Tuskegee Airman, right? Like, Tuskegee Airmen are dope. And I grew up in Georgia. You can go to Montgomery and you can go to this museum. But, like, it's a museum, you know? It's not like you have people who are like, these are people who are actively doing this that are coming to speak at your schools, you know? I didn't, I didn't even have that. Like, when the military people came to my school, it wasn't like I had my face represented in this person who's telling me that like, you know, I served in like four or five combat wars and like, you know, this is what you can do. I never have that. And I, maybe I'm generalizing, but I don't think that the majority of black and brown kids get that experience either. My dad came in for a career day when I was in fourth grade and it was dope, don't get me wrong. It was one of the best school days of my life but he was just more so like, let me flex my biceps and you can do pull-ups off of them. And less so about like, here are the actual pads. You know what I'm saying? Like it's fourth grade. It's like, it's less about that and more about like the military is cool. So I think that there is a huge deficiency in explaining to people, you know, how you can actually make use of the skills that you have and the skills of the ASVAB, the SAT of the military, will explain to you in making that into a long-term career. I didn't even get that from my own dad who was in the military. I had to figure that out on my own. Hmm. So if I were to be a military recruiter, that would be the position that I take of just like, let's find out what you're good at, right? You're very handy with mechanics. You're very handy with math and sciences. So if you were to join the military, like this should be the route, the career that you go down. And if you get out, like the recruiters will never talk about that. Recruiters talk about getting out of the military as if, I don't even have a comparable example. Like there's just no good example. It's like, if you get out of this, then you're dead. Like you might as well be dead to me. So it's like, nobody talks about that the the post and i mean same thing with any employer it's like no employer talks with you about if you leave our company how we can help you succeed fuck that they put all this effort and you know all these resources into you so they don't want you to leave so for for me especially when i was in the air force it was like i'm getting out and i told them i was like i'm getting out like you know this and it was the the perception around that was very much you're going to be flipping fries at McDonald's and not like, here's how you can take the certifications, the security clearance that you got in IT, the skills that you built here to propel you forward. And I think that 
to me is my biggest gripe with the military more so than the public perception of like them being Republican gun nuts and all that is that they do not like people to leave. And that is fraternization to me at its finest of like, if you leave us, I'm cultish, honestly, of like, if you leave us, you are fucked, you know? Mm. Recruiters will not talk to you about how to get out. They only talk to you about how to get in. Everybody that you encounter only talks about how to keep you. They don't talk about what happens if they lose you. <laughs> and I love that. I love that because I think that it's important to know that like when you're committing to this thing, this thing called the US military, whatever institution you choose, whichever alphabet, you know what I mean? Right. It's important for you to understand that there's a getting into it, but there's a getting out. Yeah. And there's And there's being a citizen and then there's being a US veteran which yep. is a whole different thing. And I think that like, for me, a lot of my passion around the military came from, again, the one cousin, the one, I got one who's in there. And like, I think about his life now and I think about all the things he was doing in the military. And I'm like, this motherfucker was fl flying aircraft, doing all types of crazy strategist shit and is now reduced to working in XYZ industry. How? how is that reduction okay? And like, I'm not cool with that because I've spent X amount of years being traumatized and thinking that my cousin was going to die, <laughs> literally, like and not yeah. come back home. And then only to come back home and be in such a position where he has to work jobs that are, that, listen, and no job is too big or too small, right? But like, compared to what I knew he was doing in the military, I'm like, damn, this seems like small potatoes. How is this the work you're doing now? It doesn't make sense to me that your post-saving America life is, is this. Like, how is this your life? And so um, I often have a hard time distinguishing how much of that is, is based off of the institution itself and what they want to give to people versus what the U.S. government as a whole provides and gives to others to try to survive. So that's an, another thing that I've tried to unpack. And that's not directing a specific question to you. No, sure. In the statement of like, yeah, well, I even wonder about the U.S. military. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, I got all these motherfuckers out here. And I know some of them. And I wonder about like when they give themselves to you or when they don't try to get out in a sneaky way where they're, they're not dishonored, dishonorably discharged or anything like that. Yeah, still, yeah, still fail to meet them. And you still, especially for people of color, spit them back out in a position where like, yes, they have a military badge, but does that badge mean anything for them as black or brown Americans in this country when they're moving around. And no, right? Because a police officer, if they're looking at somebody black and they shoot and they don't know that you're in the military for like all these, all these, all these things have seen are seemingly accolades to me don't seem to make up for the fact that your skin color can trigger somebody else into thinking you're a certain thing and demean your US citizen status down to a nigga when really you're a veteran, you're this, you're decorated that. Like there's so much. And so to me, it's important to understand like what is this institution actually doing? Like, is this institution actually taking responsibility for the fact of the, the fact that these people have identities outside of them, that them being marked as military people is not the only mark that they need and it's not the mark that's gonna get them through living in this country and survive, that they can still be targets amidst all of that. And so that's usually my gripe with the military. But thank you, John, for sharing a lot of what you're sharing because I do think that for us non-military people, it's important to continue to to echo the fact that this is a very individual experience. And that me, as you know, as just Julissa having her political opinions, is not gonna cover the gambit of what other people of color feel or are, are experiencing in this very moment of being in the military. And I do wanna highlight 
excuse me, Black Romantic Wine, I do want to highlight that actually in keeping up with these election numbers, um, I believe it was Pennsylvania, if not Georgia, where they were like, oh, we got all the, all the military votes for people who are from this state and they just got here and they're seemingly leaning really blue and the commentator was like oh we're scratched here for the military blah 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 and it's just like yeah because the military is comprised of citizens just like like any other institution right. it's like and i dare say the police force right it whatever state you want to name like i'm sure that we have some secret fucking white supremacists in certain police groups in certain states in this country but we also have the opposite living in a lot of police forces in a lot of states in this country. And so I think that having that vote come in and seeing that it was skewing blue was so important because at the end of the day, like, yes, these motherfuckers sign up to look out for us as a country, but they're still individuals who have to look mm -hmm. out for themselves. And so the military doesn't necessarily compromise your status as a BIPOC person in this country. It doesn't mean that you automatically subscribe to this idea of what the military is saying or doing, and it also doesn't mean that the military itself is saying or doing much of anything, but that it's being used as propaganda of bigger groups to say the military is doing this. The military agrees or the military people agree with, like one military person can agree with Trump and suddenly the whole military supports Trump. Right. You know what I mean? Um, right. So I, I do I do think that these nuances are, are important. And all of that leads me to a question that I feel like you've kind of already answered, but like, should people join the military? Like now in 2020 and knowing what we know and what we learned today, we're gonna have a Joe Biden presidency for the next four years. There's a lot of changes happening. Do we still think that the idea of joining the military holds the same weight that it held back when you joined, John? And do you still encourage people to join? Why or why not? I think those are two different questions. Yes, Yeah, I think that they're very much two different questions, right? Like, if you ask my dad, should people join the military? He's going to unequivocally say yes. Mm. If you ask me if you should join the military, again, I'm going to answer that with context and nuance. And my context is nuances are on a multitude of topics. Number one, what type of person are you? Are you the type of person who takes orders? Are you the, like, this is outside of the ASVAB. It's outside of like your understood perceived skill set. Like none of that truly matters if you will not listen to somebody, right? And I am that person, which is why I only did four years in the military. It's like, whether or not, the, the reason that I listen to people is that I think that their ideas are valid. So if you have somebody in my circle who presents an idea to me that I don't agree with, I'm just not going to do it, you know? If I encounter people like that, then I'm going to also say to them, you got the same qualities that I do, so I don't think that you should do it. I will say that historically, I've had mad people ask me, like, should I join? Help me join. I don't automatically say no. Mm. I, I, my position is like, it's a yes until it's a no. So let's start at the yes. I'm going to ask some follow-up questions. And based on how you answer those questions, I might influence my decision, right? I had somebody who I helped study for the ASVAB and they failed it. Like they, they did not qualify for any position in the army to join the military. So I studied with them. I said, here's how I can help you pass the ASVAB. Like, here's what we can do to like improve your proficiencies. They took that test, they passed it. Once they passed it, 
they didn't select the job that they would have selected had the original outcome been like you can join so it's like for me it's for me it's very much like I won't dissuade anybody because I didn't care for it. I still say that I don't care for it. I did my four years and like, I'm without those four years, I'm not where I'm at clearly hands down. But just because that is a situation for me, doesn't mean that I push that upon anybody else, mm. especially in today's age to where, like you said, you know, there's a lot of people who gather ideas about the military based on their immediate, either immediate resources or their general understanding. Like you have to be, you have to be a type of person to be able to contend with that. You know, I had to be the type of person to contend with being a Georgia boy in the military and having people saying, oh, well, you're one of those Fort Benning boys who's just trying to get somebody pregnant and get married in three weeks, you know? <laughs> some people not. Some people don't have that character, you know. Some people do not have that ability to be able to contend with that. And if I don't feel like you are that type, then I, you know, that's my opinion. I'm gonna let you know that. But if I feel like you're that type of person who I think can progress the idea of what I feel, what from my experience, what I have experienced about the military, about it actually being a low key, really inclusive organization of like putting people together, living people, you know, especially in the, in the housing department of putting people next to each other who would have never ever had that opportunity to live next to somebody to understand the like true ideals of, of said person. If I feel like you are that type of person to be able to contend and to like, you know, f make that flourish, then yeah, I'm going to support you in that. It, it's very much, it's very much hit or miss. And, but I will say that for the most part, in my actual experience, it's been more hit than miss. Yeah, yeah, no, that I, I think that that's beautiful. So if you were to have to say thank you to the military for something that it's done for you in your life, what are you thanking the military for? I mean, I, I will a thousand percent say, number one, um, thanks for structure. And I hate structure. I, <laughs> it's hard to like say those two things at the same time. I hate structure, but thank you to the military for, you know, giving me the idea, well, not the idea, but giving me a sense of structure, like having to do PT at five in the morning, I'm not a morning person, but given the idea that I have to do some sort of physical exercise every day, thank you. Um, thank you to the military for providing me a network, you know? So oftentimes, like even now, like we talked about ERGs that we work, right? I've had the people who are trying to start up the veterans that we work, uh, employee resource group, they're reaching out to me and I haven't done any, it's not like I've done anything other than announce it on my, like on my self-identification that I am a veteran. I've done more work for people of color. So it would make more sense for those people to reach out to me. But just for the simple fact that I said that I'm a veteran, I've had those people reach out to me. And I want to help people who want to help a group of people get better regardless, well, as long as I identify with it, right? As long as that's your end game, right? So when these people are reaching out to me, I'm like, I almost, it feels weird. Like with Veterans Day, it feels weird for me to celebrate it because I don't feel like a veteran. Like, yeah, I went to Afghanistan, but I ain't shooting nobody. Like, 
it's not like I was SEAL Team Six and like did Obama, you know, Osama in. It was like, you know, and just I did I did what I was told to do. So like, don't give me any extra credit for that. So to be in a position now to serve as an example for other people who are looking to join, who are, you know, struggling with those same concepts that I struggled with is a little bit weird for me. It's like almost, it, that's the imposter syndrome for me of like, I do not feel like, like I have so many identities that I can reconcile with. Maybe being the son of Lenny Kravitz, you know, being a black man, being all these things, but like, Along that list, like towards the bottom is actually being a military veteran. It's one of the last things that like I associate myself with, even though I know that's true. I don't think anybody's wrong in coming at me for that, you know? Right. So right. it's just a, it's just such a bizarre position to hold being just a four-year veteran. I'm sure that you've interviewed multiple veterans and like, especially the longer time that they've served, the more connected they feel with that, right? But it's just like, if you went to an hour of, you know, some some event and then they ask you like, yo, how'd the event go? And you're like, you know, I only have an hour's worth. So I can't give you the entire perspective. Right, yeah. And I honestly though, I do think though, John, that your perspective is valuable, whether it's the answer that people might conventionally want to hear or think they are supposed to hear, given the fact that we're talking about the military. I think that the answer is important because, again, for somebody who is not involved in the military and who is not like, you know what I mean, like trying to really uh, participate in that way where I would ever sign up, I think to hear the voice of our own people speaking for themselves and the experience that they had is crucial is crucial because one of the things that inspired this segment for me is that like the same cousin who i keep talking about like i've never sat down with him and had a full conversation i've never sat down with him and said hey what is your actual experience and this is somebody who was on the ground who was literally like shooting motherfuckers and having to kill civilians in iraq like is is the more like conventional framework of what we think the military is but i think that part of my trying to unpack what it is is also to understand what it is not and what it is not is does not mean that you john or you or any of the other guests that we've had so far are people who are in the front lines and like risking their life and also the idea that the definition of ptsd doesn't only live with people who are on the battleground who are yeah. seeing bombs go off that ptsd also can come from an experience from a conditioning that is being like whipped into you over and over and over again especially if you are you know serving and doing tours in a certain country whether or not you are frontline battle people even doing it for the military in a time where there's a fucking like war going on is terrifying just like it's fucking traumatizing to be a u.s citizen during a pandemic whose biggest job is to stay the fuck home you know what I mean? There's so many PTSD associated with that. Yeah, can I offer you a bite to that? Can I offer you a bite to that? Yeah. I think one of the biggest misconceptions and like one of the biggest reasons why Veterans Day is so hard for me is because when people say thank you for your service, I I interpret I read that as them telling me, especially if they follow it up with like, do you know, did you do any tours or anything like that? And I tell them I was in Afghanistan. They assume that like I was in the hurt locker, right? Yeah. <laughs> they they yeah. take that and 
say that this is a foreign and like this is something foreign. This is something that can never happen to the average American. When for me, it's like I want to give a happy Veterans Day to literally any nigga everywhere. <laughs> like, <laughs> like you have you have survived through something that is akin to this warfare. Like you have survived something that you have survived some sort of assault on your character, on your identity, on who you are, that very closely mirrors anything that I've experienced. Like I worked in IT, I was in an air conditioned building in Afghanistan, like 110 degrees was not a thing for me, right? Like the worst thing that happened to me on my deployment was that yes, the mortar came in, but it hit the pizza hut. Like, (laughs) no, like I'm not struggling. So please do not lump me in that same category as you do the Hurt Locker motherfuckers who are like truly PTSD, truly need mental health care, truly need reintegration care. I know integration is a hard word. Is it like, man, just say many things. It's not just the wrong race. Right. Yeah, exactly. It's like you truly do need help coming back into society that, you know, you would expect me, you would expect me to have. Right. Don't, don't expect that, you know? Mm. Oof, John, that is a wonderful note to stop on for this segment. Thank you so much for sharing your perspective. And like I said, for me, as somebody who's just so inherently anti-military without real basis outside of the fact that I was just terrified that my cousin who decided to join the military might die. <laughs> like that was really the big thing for me. I really, really do appreciate your perspective on this. Um, So John, tell us, where can we find you on social media? Any exciting things coming up that we should look out for? (laughs) Okay. Or not, or not. (laughs) I won't won't say that I'm the biggest social media aficionado, but however, comma, I have been told in my post-military days that I resemble a certain um, celebrity. I've had people take pictures of me because of it. You can find me on Instagram at hey you look just like. I mean, you figure out who the just like is just like. (laughs) 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 Other than that, you know, I mean, I am friends with the hosts of the show. Um, I very much support everything that they're doing. Yes, the both of you. One of you believes that, and one of you is like, oh, "Why are you stalking me?" <laughs> <laughs> um, and other than that, you know, you know where to find me. I'm happy to have any sort of conversation about what we talked about on this podcast, or you know, just about life in general. You can find me John Mark two one eight nine at gmail.com. You know, that's all the plugs that I have. Yes, awesome. <laughs> where can they find us? Yes, and you guys can find us at Ladies Who Brunch at Instagram, Ladies Brunch on Twitter, at Julissa on Instagram, and at The Real Skittles with a Z at the end for me. All right. Thank you guys so much for tuning in this week. And until next time, with a new president, y'all go ahead and brunch it. <laughs>